So reading in the book of James, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach. And it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that the, he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of the humble circumstances is to glory in his high position and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass he will pass away for the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flowers fall off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when lust or sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Let us pray. God, as we come to hear your word, to lift our voices of how great you are, let us take the words of James to heart. Let us not become so infatuated with the experience that we forget the journey. That we look towards the event that we forget the sanctification process that happens to get us there. Lord, you are God of the great, but you are God of the mundane as well. Let us revel in your majesty in our day-to-day -day life in the monotony that can be overwhelming at times, let us look to you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. 
Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning as Pastor Matt preaches. Let us go away with a deeper conviction, a conviction of the sin in our life, but a a conviction towards you as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. with their lips and walk out the door and deny them by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world is Christians. That's an interesting quote you just heard. As you hear it, as you think about it, if you grew up in the 90s, went to church in the 90s, Like I did, you may recognize that quote. It's from Brennan Manning, who is most famous for the Ragamuffin Gospel. And that audio that we took there was from the introduction to a song called What If I Stumble by DC Talk. Maybe you've heard that song if you, again, were in the 90s. The reason why I played this, I want you to be thinking about that this morning as I dismiss our kids to head out. I want you to be thinking about this idea and that statement and how true it is or how true maybe you don't think it is. As the kids go to their classes, I'd also like to ask you to open to James chapter 1 that Pastor Bruce just read from. So go to James chapter 1 in case you don't know where it's at. It's pretty close to the back of your Bible. Okay, if you find the book of Hebrews, it's the next book after it. But basically, the few seven books in front of it are First and Second Peter, First, Second, Third John. You have Jude and you have Revelation. So if you're in any of those, just go back a little bit. There's five chapters in the book of James. And as you're flipping there and finding that book, I would like for you to think of something. And that something is an infomercial. An infomercial. Now, I might be dating myself because I don't see many of these anymore. And probably because I don't watch a lot of live TV, so maybe they're still out there, or maybe because live TV has gone to the wayside and towards streaming and everything, maybe there's not quite as many out there, but they were transformed into a quick commercial after it, that, that particular product gets popular. Now, the products were always over the top. The products were always the most a miraculous thing. The, the thing that is revolutionary in, into its industry, it was always the last blank that you will ever need. And the target goal, or even the target guarantee, was a better life and happiness. You're going to have more time if you buy this product. You're going to have fresher, wider clothes if you buy this product. It's going to be a cleaner, better looking car, or maybe it's a better car altogether. The runtime was generally at night, when people should be sleeping, so they were playing on those who were somewhat deprived of sleep. And I'm not sure if any of you ever splurged and called the number. And I say called the number, maybe it was visited the website. But I do remember oftentimes as I grew up, my mom would make that call. She was at a point uh, of a low point of her depression. And in it, she would call and order these things. And it was pretty often that... um, We'd have boxes and boxes and boxes of stuff show up at our door. And now let me, I have to really clarify this this statement because many of you have that now anyway because of Amazon. But this is back when Amazon was just a book dealer in a garage in Washington, okay? So it was well before that time. To have boxes show up at your door wasn't as as popular of a thing as it is now. 
Um, the question is, is why? Well, I believe she was sold on the words and the promises of a better life, which many of you know, if you ever did buy something from an infomercial, you know it usually didn't pan out. The cheap product didn't match the description or the demonstration that was on the commercials. It, it just didn't match. And guess what? It wasn't just infomercials that are that way because the world and the humans that live in the world, they fall into the same trap. They do the same thing. The description does not match the real thing. The description is just what we might call empty words. Empty words. Just about any social media profile falls into this, does it? Those are a lot of empty words and, and false descriptions in those social media profiles. Now, I've never been on a dating website, but I can guess that if you have been, you may have seen that the people who profess to be one thing on a dating website generally are not. It's a hollow, empty word, and we can jump past that and go to the church level. The church level would say that the joy of sin is empty. The description that is there that we think we're going to get turns out to be nothing at all. We can even go to the next higher level and say, those who may call themselves Christians, those who may call themselves Christians professing Jesus as Savior, and they say they trust God with their everything, only live a completely different life than what it's supposed to be. They live completely contrary to the gospel they say they believe. The life that chooses to, to cling to the world and its values, or to go back to last week, they love, or they, they say they love Jesus, but they can't let go of their loyalties elsewhere. They can't let go of that control, and they can't let go of the excuses, and they're plentiful that are out there. Why do I tell you that? Because the book of James hits that head on. The book of James, starting in verse 2, as Pastor Bruce read, all the way to the end of the book, he basically says this, your words are not enough. Your lifestyle has to match. Your actions have to match. You can't put on a false front. You can't have this idea of, hey, I've got a life, and that life is really hollow. It's really dead inside. We put on appearance of real, but when the rubber meets the road, there is no life in you. You may wonder why we have this logo this time around. We've kind of try and describe a logo and the reason why this logo is it describes life all around something that appears and looks like life but is not the statue of michelangelo uh, sorry of david by michelangelo is a is a, a, a masterful work of art it is something that has lasted throughout generations and generations even though if you ever try and uh, go and read about it and read about the things that michelangelo had to go through to make this but he went into such great detail you can see veins in the back of the hand you can see the fingernails you can see all the things where the bushes are covering by the way uh, you you can you can see everything in great detail and he even has the the statue in such a way the statue in such a way that the body pose is something that would be a natural body pose and all of the things are there that make it look real but guess what it's still stone it's still lifeless. We, in our lives as a Christian, we can say, I have life, but inside we are stone. And so that is the reason why we have this. We can surround ourselves with life. We can be in the life of the church and yet have no life in us at all. 
So the challenge for James that we're going to look at for the next nine weeks is going to be one to challenge us to move towards Christ, to move towards God in our spiritual maturity. You know, over the next nine weeks, we're going to look at this book of James. James being the brother of Jesus and the author of this letter, you're going to see real quick, he doesn't pull punches. Maybe that's the reason why it's my favorite book in the Bible. Because it's very applicable, and he's right to the point. As a matter of fact, he jumps all over the place uh, as he goes through. In the 108 verses that make up this book, he lays down 59 commands. And of those 59 commands, he also ties in 14 verses with faith. So you're going to see this idea of not pulling punches and laying everything out. He says faith and obedience, faith and works, they go hand in hand. The commands and our faith to obey them are important. Genuine, real faith acts. Genuine, real faith works. And we're going to look deeper into that over the next nine weeks. If you want a basic overall summary of the entire book, if you want the theme of the book, it's this. Spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. That a genuine, growing, real faith will produce real results in your life. We will have real fruit. It's around this theme that James lays down practical advice on living the Christian life. And not the fact, the fact that he lays it down isn't just about our life. It doesn't just affect our life. It affects the lives of those who are around us as well. And it affects the world that we live in. The topics you're going to hear from James over the next nine weeks will include things like trials, temptation, poverty, wealth, materialism, favoritism, biblical social justice the tongue worldliness planning ahead praying and there's a list of other things that i'm not tossing in but over the next nine weeks we're going to hear and that's a lot that's a lot to cram into even nine weeks and that's a lot of topics even for him to cram into 108 verses the funny thing is is that james doesn't sit on a topic for very long he he bounces around he jumps into one to the next to the next but every time he does he does make sure to bring it back around to faith or a lack thereof. And how it affects us and those around us. Because the bottom line is this. Faith moves Christians to take steps of obedience. Faith moves Christians to take a radical step of obedience. To make the gospel known. So with that, let's get started. If you've been, found your uh, place, we're going to be in James chapter 1. Starting in verse 1, it says, James, the brother of Jesus, but he doesn't name drop. If you were the brother of Jesus, would you name drop when you're trying to write a letter to everybody so everybody would listen to you? He doesn't name drop. Instead, he says this, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we could take a really long, deep look. We could probably have an entire sermon on that one sentence if we wanted to, but we're going to move quickly through it. You can take a deeper dive into it if you want to. But what he's saying here is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a servant. You are a servant. It doesn't matter what authority you might think you have. Like I said, he's the, the brother of Jesus. He has that name drop authority. He's also one of the first leaders in the church in Jerusalem. He could have name dropped that. But what does he say instead? No, I am a bond servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a servant. Some might even say a slave that we talked about a couple weeks ago. He is a servant of God and we submit and I submit because of that. He says, then to this, to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. He's writing 
to the church, mainly Jewish Christians in the church. That's the reason why he talks about the 12 tribes going back to the, the Old Testament. That is, basically, these guys have suffered, and I say guys, general statement, they have suffered persecution. And they've been scattered and removed from their city, and they have been oppressed. One, by the Roman government, because they are Jewish Christians. Two, by the non-Jew, or sorry, the non-Christian Jews, because they're Jewish Christians. So they are completely being pushed out and separated from both their people group and their city. It's important to know that because as we read it, it will affect the way we see what James is writing. Next word he says is what? Greetings. Greetings. And then he takes greetings and he jumps right into the message. He jumps right into challenging these persecuted and scattered and oppressed. And what's he say? Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now I'm going to stop right there and put a nice little bow on how he's opening this letter. Basically he's saying this, trials and temptations in this life are a certainty. Trials and temptations in this life are a certainty, but God will use both to deepen your faith. And in that, help you mature spiritually. He says you're going to face trials in your day-to-day life. You're going to face temptations in your day-to-day thinking. However, we need to understand them and respond to them, and we do that because of our faith. How we respond to the trials how we respond to the temptations is based on how we have our faith in christ or we don't it will change the way that we respond will you be a victim or will you be a victor will you be a victim or will you be a victor the answer to that question is based on our faith will you persevere as a matter of fact today's message title is faith perseveres Will you endure? Today I want to look at three truths that affect how we understand and respond to the trials and temptations that we have, that that we have as we grow spiritually in Christ, as we spiritually mature. The first thing I want to look at is this. This is the first truth that will help us understand and respond to trials and temptations. That is this. God is sovereign over all trials. God is sovereign over all trials. Our trials are never out of God's control. With every trial we go through, God is accomplishing His purpose for His glory and ultimately, even though we may not want to hear this, for our good. The trials that we go through are for our good. The reason why we don't want to hear is because we don't want to have trials. Maybe that's the reason. Maybe that's the reason why this health and wealth prosperity gospel has such great traction in our culture today. Because when you're telling people, hey, as long as you can name it, as long as you can claim it, you're not going to be sick, you're not going to hurt, you're not going to be poor, you're not going to struggle in any way, well, that sounds pretty good. But let me just tell you something. That's garbage. That is garbage because if you are a believer who expects the Christian life to be easy, you are in for a huge shock. You're in for a huge shock. And maybe it's our own fault how we sell Jesus to people that they get this idea. 
I actually read in one of the books, the commentaries I was reading through, it said, you never see this verse about the trials and temptations in any evangelism packet. You don't get a track and it's like, hey, here you go. Here's your trials coming right at you. Come, get, come meet Jesus. That, that's not the way we lay it out there. As a matter of fact, the other thing he said is, you don't ever see it in the wordless book. You ever seen the wordless book or the wordless bracelet with the colors that match and, and you're able to walk a child through the gospel presentation? It looks like this. Black is sin. Sin in our life. But yet, Jesus' blood, it came and it washes us white as snow. And as it washes us white as snow, heaven is there and it's the color gold. And that gold is the streets of gold. And we're going to, to walk with Jesus one day in that. And through that and in that, until then, we will have growth and grow that spiritual growth. He said, you know what we leave out? We leave out the brown one. You don't, you don't have the manure one that's in the middle of that because really where manure comes in at, you live in New Mexico, you know we have to have some soil additives to make things actually turn green around here. You have to have a little extra manure in there and you can use whatever word you want for manure, but sometimes we have poop that happens in our lives, all right? It hits the fan, if you know what I mean. Things happen and trials come. Paul calls it dung. I mean, th those words are there. And we see it and we have to understand it. It's going to take some manure to make it grow. Remember who James is writing to? Scattered. Not the sheltered. The scattered. Hurting, oppressed, poor community of Christians. And he says to them, he doesn't just say to them, he commands that they should consider their trials great joy. You might think, well, man, James, how could you possibly say that? Don't you understand what they're going through? But I think what we have to understand and what we need to see is what he says the word first. And it's the word consider. Consider means to think or to evaluate. Paul uses the same word multiple times in Philippians chapter 3 when he evaluates his new life in comparison to his old life. He says, I have new priorities in living a life with God versus my old life of living my life with myself and living for myself. I will evaluate that. I consider the old life. I consider my old accomplishments. And you know what he calls his old accomplishments? Going back to manure. He says, those things are just rubbish. They're garbage. They are dung in comparison to all the things that I have in Christ. He had to evaluate. James is saying, hey, you need to evaluate. You need to evaluate and think about how you are going to respond to trials. You're going to need to think about what is truly important, your comfort and your desires or your spiritual maturity and your growth towards God. Which one matters? Because what we value determines how we evaluate. What we hold on to. Remember last week, we talked about our excuses. You hold on to those excuses. You hold on to that control. You hold on to those loyalties. All of those things are filters. You guys remember what I told you to do with them last week? You remember? We, we said, hey, we need to burn that baby, right? We need, to, we need to get rid of those things. That's the stuff we have to do. It's funny. All my thing last week, I saw people, you almost lit the stage on fire. I know. It wasn't my intention, I promise. But you at least got the point. We need to get rid of that stuff. Those things that we hold on to far too tightly that determine how we evaluate. Because we say the word but in there. 
yeah, but God, I understand, but. No, we got to get rid of that. And, and that's where we find ourselves. What are we evaluating, though? We're evaluating our trials. And let me just tell you this. We can't expect everything in our life to always go our way. Trials will come. Some trials are coming because we're humans. Sickness, accidents, disappointments, and even big tragedies like death. As a matter of fact, weird as it was, I was in Walmart yesterday grabbing some orange juice for the men's breakfast, and the lady that was doing the self-checkout, checking it all out, she came over to me and started talking about Bill Richardson dying. And then we got into this discussion on death. And I'm like, I'm just, I'm trying to get to the men's breakfast. I, I really, God, not now. Don't open this door. The door was open. So we started talking about death and how it happens to everybody. And how, are you ready for that? And she's like, wow, I didn't really think about that. I'm like, well, I, okay. You know, so, so we had the conversation. But those things will happen because we are human. The next thing we see is some things are going to happen because we're Christian. Jesus said it's going to happen to us because we're Christian. Paul says it's going to happen to us because we're Christian. We are going to face trials. We just talked about it a couple weeks ago when we wrapped up Ephesians. We said life is war. Satan is going to battle us. The world is going to oppose you. It's going to happen. And let's be honest. There's one other category of why trials happen. That's because we're dumb. We do dumb things, and when you play dumb games, you win dumb prizes. Yeah, you guys know. There's consequences for every action that we have, and sometimes it's just because we make that. But here's what we need to realize. These trials in and of themselves, they're not joyful. And he's not asking us to be joyful about the trials, but there is joy to be found in knowing that God is sovereign and that he is accomplishing his purpose through our trials. Well, what's he accomplishing? Why are we embracing this trial? What things can we see and learn in the trials? Well, that's what he says here in verses 3 and 4. He says, you're going to become spiritually mature. You're going to become spiritually true. We're going to start growing in his likeness. That's the first thing he's going to tell us. That's what it says here again. It says, the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. Your, your version might say perseverance. Your version might have a different word. They all fall into the same thing. That we're going to endure, and that endurance is going to continue to cause us to grow. It's going to have this full effect. So you may become what? Mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, as we look at that, we have to understand God's goal for our life is to be mature in Him. That is God's goal for our life. Every person in this room, every person on this planet will stand before God one day. Plain, simple, period. And in that, God's goal from now until then is to prepare us for that day. He is growing us for that day. But the problem is, is we don't think like that. Our goal is not spiritual maturity. What is your goal in life? What is the end goal for what you want? Well, we generally want to be successful. We want to have a good job that gets good raises. We want to have a good standing in our own little world. You know, we always look and people have these higher ranking things, but in the big picture, it's really not that big of a deal, but we strive for that. To achieve the definition of what we think should be our family or what we think our life should be. And I say that's a problem because of this. If something jacks up your plans, if something gets in the way, if some trial ruins everything, and we use that term a lot, so I'll throw the air quotes up for that, ruins everything and devastates us, 
We don't know what to do. You know why? Because our focus has been in the wrong place the whole time. And that focus gets all messed up because something came in and ruined it. If our focus is on God and we realize that His goal for us is to know Him and grow to be like Him, it changes the way we see that trial. And it changes the end result of that trial. And it changes and helps us see the end result of that trial. Because like the wordless book says, with the addition of brown, it takes a little manure to make the green happen. With the right perspective, we can grow in godliness through a trial more than we can in any comfortable situation. Can you agree with me on that? Where has the most growth happened in your life? I could share my whole life testimony each place where God did major things and it wasn't because I was sitting on the couch enjoying you know, a glass of orange juice and not talking to somebody at Walmart. Not only do we continue to grow in His likeness as we spiritually mature, we also learn to trust His wisdoms through trials as we mature. And it says we ask for it. Verse 5 says, if you lack wisdom, ask for it. Just in case you're wondering, you lack wisdom. You lack wisdom. I lack wisdom. We are not complete in that yet. And if we're in the middle of the trial, man, God's trying to teach us something. So what should you ask for in the middle of a trial? What should you pray for in the middle of a trial? If somebody comes to me and says, hey, I'm going through this, can you pray for me? The answer I need to give is yes, and here's how I'll pray. I will pray that God gives you wisdom. It doesn't say in there, pray that he gives you comfort. It doesn't say gives you ease. It doesn't pray to say, give me a way out. It doesn't even say pray to give you strength. It is wisdom. We need wisdom. And then he tells us how to ask. Look at verse 6. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. That's a pretty in-your-face, no-punches-pulled statement. But as I read it, you know what I think about? I think about Peter, when he got out of the boat to walk on water towards Jesus. I mean, we could, we could go into all of that, and I'll keep it short, but basically he had this locked-on-Jesus faith that got him out of the boat in the first place because no normal person steps out of the boat thinking, I'm going to stand up and get on water and be able to walk. But then guess what crept in? Doubt. He doubted, what, what am I doing here? And what did he start looking at? The waves. He was double-minded. Jesus waves, Jesus waves, Jesus waves. What did that cause him to do? sink until jesus reached out he got his focus back on him and he pulls him up so my question is in your life and in your trials is jesus who he says he is is god in control the answer is yes but do you believe it do you have faith in that if so it should change the way we face trials and even how we pray within that trials and here's what we pray god Help me understand why this is happening to me. I've been to lots of places where devastation has taken place and the thing I hear people crying out is, oh God, why? Now are they crying out for wisdom? I don't think so. But maybe somewhere in between the Holy Spirit's hearing that groaning and he's laying out the feet before God to, to say, give him wisdom. Help him understand why. Help me gain a perspective on why you're doing this and what you are doing through this. 
Help me not miss the opportunity to be able to use this for your work. Because it takes spiritual wisdom and it takes spiritual maturity to submit to the Lordship of Christ, to submit to His plan, to submit to His timing. Man, we are impatient people, aren't we? I mean, the whole idea of spiritual maturity is you're being grown up from a baby to an adult. As a parent, one of the things I struggle with the most with, with my children is patience. Just wait. And we're bad about this because we're like, here, just take this tablet or just take this thing. Don't wait. Go to a restaurant sometime. Watch what everybody's doing. What are they doing? You already know the answer. They're on their phones. Why? Because they can't wait. I have to be entertained now. I have to have my eyes on something now. I can't wait. Well, that carries over into our spiritual life. We need to wait and understand that God is challenging us to wait because I believe that patience really is the foundation for everything else. It helps us see God and understand that He's not on our timetable. As we spiritually mature through trials, we also do this. We learn to rely on Him and His provision. Look at 9 through 11 here. It's almost like these don't fit. I'm not sure if you were listening as Pastor Bruce read, but they're just kind of tossed in there. Sounds like at least. It says, Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation. But let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower in the field. But the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass. Its flowers fall off and beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. You know what he's actually saying here? He's saying that trials level the playing field. Trials are going to come to the rich and trials are going to come to the poor. Trials take the poor, when, when they have them, it helps them see what they have in God because they really don't have anything left. But it takes the rich and, it, and, and when you see it, it shows them that money can't buy you everything. Money can't dig you out of your problems. Trials help us build our trust in God. So the question is, are you building your trust in God or are you building your trust in yourself? That ties into temptations that he's going to mention next, but we'll get to that. As we spiritually mature through trials, one final thing I see here is that we learn what we're actually living for. Look what verse 12 says. Blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the one who endures. Blessed is the one who perseveres. Blessed is the one who is patient and waits on God. The one who loves him, the one who obeys him, they will be rewarded. When I read this, I think about Paul's last letter. There's a second letter to Timothy. At the very end of that book, he writes these words. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but all those who have loved his appearing. What is the end goal? What's your end goal? Is it your success or is it your maturity in Christ? Because that's what Paul is laying out here. He says, hey, we have to remember what we're living for. What's your end goal? It's funny, for whatever reason, and some of you may get this and some of you may not, but Maylee asked me this morning, she's like, Dad, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I'm like, what? <laughs> it's some TikTok thing that I guess Caleb was talking about. And I'm like, I have no idea what, what that even means. And apparently, uh, they've been videoing guys saying it. They're like, oh, like almost every day. I don't think about that often. I think about it when I'm reading the Bible because it tends to tie together. But I, I don't think about it that often. But in that, what I got to thinking about was this. 
The Roman Empire was a great and grand empire. And I don't think about it. I don't think about the people that were in it, that were striving to get to the top of anything. But I don't think about it. You know what I think about? I think about a guy named Paul who within that Roman Empire lived for Christ. And he shared the gospel. And I probably am standing here today because of it. Because God used that to trickle down to people like you and me. That's what I think about. So what are you living for? Something that nobody's going to care about 100 years from now? Not even your great-great-grandkids? Anybody know their great-great-grandparents' names? I mean, think about that. But I can tell you that there's a legacy of Christianity that comes down from each generation to generation. You remember that. Live for Christ. What are you living for? Because this life is a race, a marathon. And if we're living for that eternal prize, we will be growing in the now prize, that spiritual maturity because of it. So the first truth, that was only one. Sorry, I got three, so I'm going to roll here. All right? We need to understand that God is sovereign over our trials. The second thing we have to understand, that second truth that we need to understand as we're going through them, we are responsible in our temptations. We are responsible in our temptation. Yes, God will give us trials to grow closer to Him, but we need to be careful not to jump into the thought that God also tempts us to turn from Him in those trials. The truth is, is that every trial brings a temptation. Every trial brings a temptation. Our trials can grow us closer to God or they can tempt us to question that sovereignty that we just talked about. Is God really in control? The trials that others go through can also tempt us to do the same thing. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, if God's really good, then why? That's a temptation to challenge God and why He is the way He is and we think somehow we're better than Him. Isn't that kind of the original sin to begin with? We blame our trials. We blame others for our trials. And we blame all these things for the decisions that we make. Going back to that Brendan Manning quote up front. said the greatest cause of atheism of of the world uh, is basically hypocritical Christians. And the truth is that a hypocritical Christian can have an effect on how we see God. But we have full responsibility for our choice on whether we reject God or whether we um, fall into Him. We live in a world that blames everyone and everything but ourselves. There will be outside influences, but the choice is ultimately up to you. Will you chase after God or will you chase after other things? Will you come up with an excuse? And unfortunately, we're born on the wrong foot, aren't we? Because we are born sinners there's no good in us i mean if you look at these next verses it makes it clear that it's on us starting in verse 13 of james chapter 1 it says no one undergoing a trial should say i am being tempted by god since god is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by the world nope satan nope what's it say your own evil desires. It's in you. It's ours. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when a sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Again, outside influences are there. But the fault of sin and the decisions are made ultimately lies on me. I have a problem at my core. You know what it is? It's my heart. I I don't need a cleaner version of my heart. I don't need a software update. You know what I need? A brand new one. 
I need a brand new one, and Christ offers that to me because I am a sinner, and I have an evil desire, and the great tempter will play on that evil desire. And James lays out the process of how that happens. He said, first, the word deception. The mind. How often do we think that we are right? How often do we think we should do something first? We are deceived into thinking that God's plan isn't right. It moves into desire. Desire is that feelings. Man, feelings are they're good sometimes, and other times not so much. Feelings are that bait on the hook. I'm not sure if, if you grew up in youth ministry or in youth ministry, your youth pastor probably used one of two illustrations. One was is how to catch a monkey. And it was, you put an orange inside of a hollowed-out coconut. That hollowed-out coconut is tied to a thing because when the monkey reaches in, he wants that orange so bad, his fist gets too big that he can't get his hand out of that hollowed-out coconut, but he refuses to let go of the orange. That temptation will get you hooked. The other is, is that whole idea of Eskimos and how to kill a wolf. And they put blood of a, of a um, whale on a knife, and they freeze it, and they freeze it, and they freeze it, and they cover up that knife so you don't see the knife blade. The wolf smells it, they go, they start licking, they lick, 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 lick. Well, that's cold blood, and all of a sudden the blood starts getting warm, and they hmm, I really like this, and they don't realize it's their blood because their tongue has exposed by licking off the other blood, they expose the blade, but they have that insatiable desire for blood that eventually they bleed out and they die. That is how Satan works. He gives us that thing, that desire, and when we reach out and grab it, that disobedience is what comes next. It's our actions. We act out that desire. Acting out gives birth to something that will grow to be very powerful, and that is death. Death is a result of disobedience. And these are the four steps that took place in Genesis 3, and they continue to happen since then. Third truth. I told you I had to move fast. I want you to see as we understand and react to trials and temptations, is that God is faithful for our salvation. Look at verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. But his own, by his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So what do we do during the trials and temptations? What do we do during those moments when we are so prone to fix our eyes on our circumstances that we miss what God has for us in, in, in the future? What do we do during those temptations when, when we are so prone to be dragged away and enticed, as it says, by the desires that are the core of our, really, of our lives? We remember that God is faithful in our salvation. That's what we do. James 1.17, God does not change like shifting shadows. In your trials and temptations, you will be tempted to believe that God is not who he says he is. You're going to listen to your own thoughts and not listen to what scripture has told you. Remember that God is good. He always has been and he always will be. And that he wants what is best for you. Sometimes that doesn't match up what you think is best for you, but he wants what is actually best for you. So trust him in your trials and turn to him in your temptations. Verse 17 also says he's the source of everything good. I want you to go back to that word and consider. Consider, evaluate. What? The goodness of God. As a matter of fact, let's, let's look at the different characteristics of God's goodness as we wrap up. His goodness is unchanging. God is constantly, consistently good. Can you say that with me? God is constantly, consistently good. 
He never gets in a bad mood. He never changes for the worse. He never even changes for the better because he's already perfect and ultimately and wonderfully good in every way. So you can't get any better than God. If he could change for the better, guess what? That means he's not ultimately good and this is all a moot point. His goodness is unchanging. His goodness is also undeserved. Verse 18 says that God chose to give birth through the word of truth. We're going to see that a lot in the, the book of James as he talks about works, but the foundation of it all is found right here in this verse. It's all about grace. God chose. God has given us a new life based not on our works, but on his grace. He chose to give us birth. He chose to take his word and write it on our hearts. Hearts that were sinful to the core. Hearts that needed to be made new. This is the gospel. This is the message of Christianity. Anything good in you is good because God, in his undeserved goodness, gave it towards us. God is the source of everything good in us. Were it not for him, guess what? Everything in us would be bad. Everything in us would be rotten. We need his undeserved goodness to change us from the inside out. That's what faith needs to rely on, really at every level of life. It's not a point where you'd be like, oh, you know, I got it. We're always going to need to be relying on that. So first, his goodness is unchanging. Second, his goodness is undeserved. Third, it's unending. We are the first fruits of his, of his creatures, it says in verse 18. That picture of first fruits carries the idea of that of which is to come. Just a, it's a little taste of what is to come. What God has done in our lives to change our hearts by his goodness is only a preview of the day we come before him and he will make all things new in all creation. And the work he's done in a new birth one day will lead to a new heaven and a new earth where there'll be no more trials and no more temptations. And I know we're all looking forward to that, but until then, we are encouraged by this fact. He has saved us from our sin. And he has saved us from our sin beyond a shadow of a doubt. And even beyond that, as we're going through trials and as we're going through our sorrows and as we're going through our hurts and as we're going through our pain and as we're going through even disappointments, God is with us and he is good and he knows what he's doing. Contemplate, evaluate, consider this truth. The truth of the gospel of a God who conquered sin and conquered suffering through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. Why? So that today I can consider and I can evaluate my trials with pure joy and face temptations with confidence. God is doing a great work in you and through you. The question is, is do you see it? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are and thank you for the way you continue to work in us. This idea of spiritual maturity, God. I even think about the statue of David. That it started out with just a block of granite. But through chiseling and through shaping, it became a masterpiece. God, Ephesians 2.10 says that we are your masterpiece. And we've been created for good works. Now think about that even today as we're going through trials that there are the chiseling that are making us into who you want us to be. We're going through temptations that God that turns us and relies us on your strength. God, I don't know what people are going through in here, but I know that not everything's perfect. 
Just because we're sitting in church, just because we're watching online doesn't make our lives perfect. We are struggling, and God, we need you. And not just you, we need your wisdom to understand why we're going through it and how you're going to use it for your good and your glory and ultimately the best for us in our lives. Help us in that today, God. We pray in your name. Amen. I'm going to